Go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2 is our text this morning. As you're turning there, I'd like to begin with a story about a couple of missionaries. You have likely never heard of these two men, but God in his providence used them to take the gospel to the fourth largest island in the world. Their names were David Jones and David Griffiths, and they were sent by the London Missionary Society to the island of Madagascar. Jones and Griffiths arrived there roughly 200 years ago in the 1820s, and thanks to a positive response from the king of Madagascar, they were given the ability to set up a system of schools and the opportunity to educate the people. They also created an alphabet for the Malagasy language, and they translated the New Testament into Malagasy, and they used that as their primary textbook in those schools. At the outset, things on Madagascar went very well. However, although the king was open to European education and technology, he was resistant the idea that his subjects would convert to Christianity. When he died in 1828, his wife became the sole ruler of the island, and she at first was tolerant of Christian missionary work, but in 1835, she outlawed conversion for any of her subjects. As a result, the believers of Madagascar were severely persecuted. Many lost their property. Some were fined and even imprisoned, and there were a few who were executed. The missionaries themselves, Jones and Griffiths, were forced to flee. Back in Britain, David Griffiths actually wrote an account of the persecution of the Christians on Madagascar. The persecution continued until the queen's death in 1861, at which point the gospel began to flourish, so much so that in 1869 the new queen professed to be a Christian and hundreds of thousands of the people there professed faith in Christ. As the gospel transformed the lives of individual believers... The entire culture of Madagascar was transformed, and it was the transformation in the lives of these individual believers that actually reverberated across the island as those who were yet unbelieving saw the change in their family and friends. They were attracted to the gospel, so much so that many more embraced the Lord Jesus because They saw the power of the gospel at work in the lives of others. There was an article in a publication called the Sunday School Times, written in the mid-1800s, that said this, When native converts of the island of Madagascar come to be baptized or present themselves for baptism, It was often asked of them, what first led you to think of becoming Christians? The answer usually was that the changed conduct of others who had become Christians was what first arrested their attention. I knew this man to be a thief, this one a drunkard, 
Another was very cruel and unkind to his family. Now they are all changed. The thief is an honest man. The drunkard is sober and respectable, and the other is gentle and kind in his home. There must be something in a religion that can work such changes. What a testimony to the power of the gospel. Former thieves were now trustworthy and honest. Former drunkards were respectable and dignified. Those who were formerly cruel and unkind were now gracious and loving. It was the remarkable conduct of these transformed believers that compelled their friends and neighbors to want to know more. Their behavior made their Christian confession credible as they walked in newness of life, no longer in the patterns of sin and disobedience that had characterized them, but now in a manner worthy of the gospel. And as a result, an entire culture was changed. We find a similar story in our text this morning. Seventeen and a half centuries before Jones and Griffiths went to Madagascar, another pair of missionaries traveled to an island that was full of unreached people. Those missionaries were named Paul and Titus, and the island to which they journeyed was called Crete. The island of Crete is not as big as Madagascar. It's the 88th largest island in the world, not the fourth. But the spiritual need was equally great. This missionary journey likely took place in the early to mid-60s of the first century after the events recorded in the book of Acts, which is why we don't know much about the specifics, but clearly the gospel had prevailed Many had embraced faith in Jesus Christ, churches had been planted, and after ministering together there for an unspecified length of time, Paul then left to continue evangelistic work elsewhere, but he left Titus behind. We know this from chapter 1, verse 5, where Paul says, this is why I left you in Crete, to set in order that which remains and to appoint elders in every city. So the gospel had been preached and churches planted, but there was still work to be done. And knowing this, Paul writes this epistle to Titus, a short epistle, 46 verses in length, to encourage and instruct Titus as he continued the work of gospel ministry on the island of Crete. Like Madagascar, the only hope for the unredeemed culture And the unredeemed people of Crete was the truth of the gospel, and Paul makes that clear in this letter. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 in Paul's greeting, he starts by talking about the power of the gospel, that it is the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, and that we have the hope of eternal life found only in Jesus Christ. Verse 5 of chapter 1 again gives those instructions to Titus as to what he is to do. And then verses 6 to 9 provide a list of qualifications for those whom Titus is to appoint as elders, as leaders in these churches. 
Paul explains, elders are to exhibit spiritual maturity, godliness, and upright conduct, really for two reasons. One, because they are to be the role models for the rest of the congregation, and secondly, because they are to stand out as a testimony for the truth of the gospel against the backdrop of a corrupt Cretan culture. And if we were to read verses 10 to 16 in chapter 1, we would see just how corrupt Cretan culture really was. In fact, if you look there in verse 12, this pretty much sums it up. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, has said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So the the culture of Crete was a corrupt culture. It was, as verses 10 to 16 explain, characterized by rebellion, deception, falsehood, greed, lying, wickedness, gluttony, impurity, defilement, hypocrisy, debauchery, and disobedience. And what a contrast that would have been to the integrity and moral uprightness exhibited by the elders whom Titus was called to a point. But as we come to chapter 2, we learn that it is not just the elders in the congregation who are called to conduct themselves in a Christ-like manner. It's not just the spiritual leaders who are responsible to exhibit the transforming truth of the gospel in the way that they live. Every Christian on Crete was called to demonstrate that kind of character. On the island of Madagascar, it was the transformed lives of the believers there that testified to the power of the gospel, that made the gospel attractive. That same thing was true roughly 18 centuries earlier on the island of Crete. We come then to our text in Titus 2, verses 1 through 8. Against the backdrop of a corrupt and godless culture, Paul describes the compelling contrast of Christian conduct. Now, the outline for this passage and the outline that we'll use this morning is quite simple because in verses 2 through 8, Paul addresses distinct demographic groups within the Christian community there on Crete. First, he addresses the older men, verse 2, the older women, verse 3, younger women, verses 4 and 5, and younger men, including Titus, in verses 6 through 8. And while this passage is often viewed as a template for discipleship within the church, and it certainly can be that, I think we'll see that Paul's point is bigger than that. He is calling these Christians against the backdrop of the corrupt culture of Crete. He is calling them to live out their Christian faith in a distinctly countercultural way. This testimony would serve as a convincing witness to a watching world. Now, in verses 9 and 10, we find that there's a fifth group that 
Paul addresses. Then the context of Roman society, this demographic of bond slaves, certainly constituted a significant portion of the population. Slaves were considered part of the Roman household. And we find in verse 10 that they also were to conduct themselves in a manner keeping with the gospel. For our purposes today, we're going to look at the first four of these groups, the groups identified in verses 2 through 8. Paul's instruction to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, is clear. But, a contrast to the descriptions of Cretan culture in the previous verses, but, as for you... Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. As a missionary, a church planter, and a pastor, and in stark contrast to the corrupt culture of Crete, Titus is to boldly proclaim to God's people the things fitting for sound doctrine. Paul will repeat this command in verse 15 where he again reminds Titus to speak these things with all authority so that the message is not muted. So Titus is to boldly proclaim and teach the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. Now we might expect Paul to follow up a statement about sound doctrine with a list of systematic truths or doxological statements. There are certainly other places in the New Testament where Paul provides that kind of theological content, but his emphasis here moves from the content of sound doctrine to the conduct that ought to characterize and accompany sound doctrine. For those tempted to think that theology is not practical or that doctrine has no relevance to real life, this passage stands as evidence to the contrary. As these verses make clear, how you behave reflects what you believe. Your life evidences your theology. Your deeds express your doctrine, or to use a common expression, your actions speak louder than words. In these verses, Paul will go on to describe the conduct that is in keeping with or befitting of sound doctrine, conduct that adorns the gospel by putting the transforming power of Christ on display. Cretan society was so corrupt that a consistent Christian witness would shine as a bright light against the darkness of a corrupt culture. And that same thing is true for us today. The things that characterize Cretan culture also characterize California culture. We may not live on an island, at least not until the next big earthquake, but we do know what it's like to live in a culture marked by deception, greed, debauchery, and disobedience. 
So how are we to conduct ourselves in a corrupt culture? Well, this passage answers that question because the conduct that was conduct that Paul calls the Cretan Christians to exhibit is the same conduct that the Bible calls us as California Christians to display. So let's consider each of these four groups as Paul addresses them one by one in this passage. Group number one, older men. Titus chapter 2 verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. term older men likely refers to men age 60 and up. The Apostle Paul referred to himself with this same term in Philemon verse 9. Uh, what a contrast these older men in the Cretan church we're called to be against the, the kind of culture that Paul had described was so commonplace on Crete at the end of chapter 1. Those outside the church were led astray by myths and deception, but these older men in the church were to be temperate or sober-minded. They were to think rightly and in accordance with sound doctrine. Cretan culture was defined by deception and debauchery, but these men were to be dignified and honorable. Cretans described themselves as evil beasts and lazy gluttons, but older men in the church were to be marked by being sensible and self-controlled. As those advanced in years, they were to exhibit spiritual maturity. They were to be sound in the faith. They were to be sound in love and sound in the hope that gives perseverance. Not all of these men, of course, would be elders in the sense of the office of an elder, but all of them were called to be examples for the congregation of what it looks like to be a faithful and mature Christian. They would model and mentor the younger generation, specifically the younger men. In American culture, older men are stereotyped in various ways, from being grumpy and bitter to being out of touch, detached, or sometimes even just a little bit crazy. Nothing could be further from Paul's description here, church is no place for grumpy old men. The, the older men are to be sound in, in love and resounding in hope. The church is no place for men who are undignified and brash. They're to be sensible and honorable. And, and the church is no place for older men who are aloof or disconnected, like I retired and I'm done. No, church is a place for men who are actively engaged in ministry and proactive in service. And if you are here this morning in this category as an older man, consider the incredible opportunity that you have to model Christ's likeness and to mentor the younger generation of men as they also pursue sanctification. For the older men in the Cretan church, this is what it looked like to live in a way that was consistent with sound doctrine. The same is true for us. 
And so for the older men here this morning, we might ask the question, if actions speak louder than words, what do your deeds say about your doctrine? How does your behavior reflect what you believe? How does your life reflect on your Lord? Do the patterns of your conduct bear witness to the transforming power of Christ? Because when they do, they adorn the gospel. They make it credible and attractive. And they shine as a bright light in a dark and corrupt culture. Well, Paul addresses a second group in verse 3. This is the older women. Verse 3, Paul says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, not enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Like the older men, this category of older women speaks of those in the church who were age 60 and above. And in a culture like Crete, which was marked by irreverent attitudes and slanderous speech and debauched behavior, these Christian women were to live in a distinctly different way. Their conduct was to be reverent, honoring to the Lord, and consistent with the truth of His Word. Their speech was to be free from slander. They were to avoid being busybodies and malicious gossips, and their passions were to be free from the intoxication and dissipation that comes with being associated with drunkenness. They were not to be enslaved to any addiction, alcohol or otherwise. Instead, they were to teach what is good, specifically modeling good conduct for the younger women and mentoring the younger women in their pursuit of Christ-likeness. And if you're here this morning in that category, the category of energetic and vibrant older women, consider the opportunity that you have been given both to model and to mentor to model godly conduct and to mentor those younger women who view you as their examples and their role models. Whether in Crete or in California, this is what it looks like when older women live in a manner that is consistent with sound doctrine. Their behavior is not determined by the stereotypes of the culture, but instead by the transforming truth of the gospel. And so... For those older women here today, we might ask the same question. If actions speak louder than words, then what do your deeds say about your doctrine? What does your behavior say about what you believe? How does your life reflect on your Lord? Do the patterns of your life testify and bear witness to the transforming truth of the gospel? Because when they do, they adorn the doctrine of God our Savior by putting His glory on display. And they shine as a bright light in a dark culture. 
Well, starting in verse 4, Paul moves on to younger generations, from the older generation to the younger, and he addresses a third group of believers in verses 4 and 5, the younger women. Paul writes, so that they, the older women, may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. What is it that the older women are to teach the younger women? Well, Paul tells us. And it's clear from these verses that Paul's primary focus is on those younger women who are married. But certainly, the characters of love and sensibility and purity and kindness and self-control, those character traits pertain to all younger women, not only to those who are married. But for those who are, Paul says in verse 4 that they are instructed to love their husbands. And for those who are moms, they are instructed to love their kids. I think it's significant that Paul uses the word phileo here for love, which is the love of genuine affection, meaning that wives are to have genuine affection for their husbands and moms are to have genuine affection for their kids. In verse 5, Paul adds that younger women are to be sensible or self-controlled, characterized by moral purity as they fulfill their God-given role. The phrase workers at home reflects the God-given priority for a wife and mom to prioritize the care that she has for her husband and her children. And when younger women portray these character traits... They testify to the truthfulness of the gospel, including, as Paul goes on here, exhibiting kindness, which is not always easy, and also gentleness and patience towards her family, for those who are married to display also an attitude of submission to their own husbands as they submit to his leadership now, some of the items that Paul has in verses 4 and 5 were definitely countercultural in the first century. There were even feminist movements in the Roman Empire that tried to encourage women to rebel against their husband's leadership. So, this was a countercultural call from Paul to these younger women. And some of these things, even today, would be regarded as politically incorrect. But that countercultural conduct is a testimony for the gospel. What a witness these younger women on Crete would be if they lived in a way that demonstrated love and kindness and meekness to their families. On the flip side, if they did not act this way, if they were constantly irritable and unkind towards their fellow family members, if they were not self-controlled, not pure, not interested in prioritizing care for their families, or if they were disrespectful and dishonoring towards their husbands, what would that say about the gospel that they professed? And that's why Paul reminds them, when you live in a manner consistent with the gospel, then end of verse 5, the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, for those of you in this category this morning, 
consider the opportunity that you have to adorn sound doctrine through the way you love and show kindness even within your home. In those moments when it is difficult, perhaps even naturally impossible, to be kind and patient and gracious toward your husband and your kids. When you respond in a way that is Christ-like, you demonstrate the supernatural power of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, and you give testimony to the truth of the gospel in that moment. Your right response is not only an act of worship. It is that, but it is also an act that testifies to a watching world that the gospel is real. And for those of you younger women who are not married, you can likewise adorn the gospel by being characterized by self-control, purity, kindness. The beginning of verse 4, we see that if the younger women are wondering how to do this, They're encouraged to find an older woman who can help them with this. That's the discipleship component that's clearly laid out in this passage. As this passage illustrates, the older women are called to mentor the younger women to help them as they seek to put the transforming truth of the gospel into practice. But to come back to the question that we asked of our prior two groups, for you younger women who are here today, do the patterns of your life bear witness to the transforming power of Christ? What do your deeds say about your doctrine? What does your behavior say about what you believe? What does your life reflect about your Lord? When you respond in kindness and love and patience and gentleness and purity and self-control, your response adorns the gospel by putting its glory on display. And that kind of countercultural, even sometimes politically incorrect conduct shines as a bright light in the midst of a dark culture. Well, we come to a final group in Paul's list, the younger men. Verses 6 through 8, and Paul includes Titus in this group. He says, Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible, meaning self controlled, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sounded speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Like the younger women, the younger men are to be sensible. They are to exercise self-control. They are not to be under the control of their own sinful lusts, the lusts of the flesh, but instead they are to be controlled by the Spirit as they live out their love for Christ. In verse 7, Paul shifts his focus to Titus specifically, but Titus becomes a representative of this entire group. So that what Paul says to Titus, he's really saying to all of the younger men. Titus is called to exemplify things that all young men should exhibit. He is to be proactive in pursuing good deeds. 
He is to think according to sound doctrine, and he is to speak in a way that is above reproach. So his actions are proactive in serving others. His thoughts are aligned with what the Word of God reveals, and his words leave the opponent no opportunity to bring a reproach on the gospel. And so, instead of being dominated by sinful passions, he is sensible and self-controlled. Instead of wickedness or even laziness, he is actively engaged in good works. Instead of thinking things that are untrue or unhelpful, his thoughts are governed by sound doctrine. And instead of saying things he thinks no one else will hear, making jokes that, hey, it was funny, No, instead of that, his speech is characterized by that which is irreproachable, and as a result, his reputation is above reproach. Again, what a contrast this was to the corrupt culture of Crete. If if Titus and the other young Christian men exhibited this kind of behavior, then as Paul says at the end of verse 8, anyone who might oppose the work of the gospel there would have nothing bad to say about what was happening. It's irreproachable. This is what God calls those of us who are in this category here this morning, category in which I would include myself. If we are to live in a manner befitting sound doctrine, we must be sensible and self-controlled. We must be proactive in doing good. We must think that which is in accordance with truth, and we must speak that which is above reproach. We're called to honor Christ with our self-discipline, our doctrine, our deeds, our dialogue. This is what it looks like for young men to conduct themselves in a manner that accords with sound doctrine. And if we as younger men need help with this, then we would look to the older men to help us those who are modeling Christian conduct and those who are mentoring us in the faith, just as the younger women look to the older women, the younger men look to the older men. But we might ask ourselves this morning, you younger men who are here, the question we have asked of the other groups, and that is this, if actions speak louder than words, then what do your deeds say about your doctrine? What does your behavior reveal about what you believe? What does your life, even in those moments when you think no one else is watching, what does your life say about your Lord? Do the patterns of your life bear witness to the transforming truth of Christ? Because when they do, they adorn the gospel by putting its glory on display, and they shine like a bright light in the midst of a dark and corrupt culture. It was this kind of countercultural conduct that Paul calls the Christians on Crete to exhibit and to display. This is the kind of behavior that is in keeping with sound doctrine, and it stands in contrast to the world around us. 
Having surveyed these verses, and we went through some of these character traits quite quickly, but we can now go back and ask several questions of the text. The first question is one we have already answered. That's the question of what. What does it look like to live like a Christian? What does it look like to live in a manner consistent with sound doctrine? Paul's answered that for us in this text, and he's done so by addressing these different demographic groups within the congregation. But this raises a second question, and that is why? Why is it so important for Christians to conduct themselves in a way that befits sound doctrine? Well, we could look to many different passages to answer that question. We could look at the tests of life in 1 John, or we could look at 2 Corinthians 5.17, that we are new creations in Christ. And as those who are new creations in Christ, we've been given a new heart, a heart that can love God. And as those who love God, John 14.15, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. And so we could answer that question, why? By pointing to the evidence that good works produce in confirming that our conversion is real. But here in Titus chapter 2, Paul's concern centers on the perceived credibility of the gospel in front of a watching world. Paul here is not so concerned that Your behavior confirms for you that you are a Christian. He's concerned that your behavior confirms for the watching world that you are a Christian and that your Christianity is real and that it has transformed you from the inside out. We see that in the end of verse 5. Why should we conduct ourselves this way? So that the word of God will not be dishonored. The end of verse 8, why should we conduct ourselves this way? So that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And if we were to include verses 9 and 10, which again was addressed to bond slaves, why should we conduct ourselves in this way? End of verse 10, so that we will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. In other words... Your conduct gives credibility to the transforming power of the gospel. And the collective witness of the church in Crete, when the people lived like this, is that the watching world would be compelled to take notice. When we conduct ourselves like this, it makes the gospel attractive. It's not that we are attractive. It's that unbelievers are attracted to the one who has changed us, the Lord Jesus Christ. This raises a third question, what, why, and how? How is it possible For us to live this way? How is it possible for older men to be dignified? How is it possible for older women to be honorable? How is it possible for young moms to be patient with their kids? How is it possible for young men to avoid making jokes that are inappropriate? How is this possible? How is this conduct possible? Paul answers that question 
in verses 11 to 14, a passage that Tom read for us earlier, the grace of God has appeared, that's the gospel, bringing salvation to all men, meaning making salvation available to all people, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawless deeds and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. What is the catalyst that makes this all possible? It is the gospel itself. We don't behave this way in order to become saved, but rather as those who have been transformed and converted and regenerated by the power of God through the work of Christ on our behalf, we now have been set free from the law of sin and death and we have been liberated to walk in righteousness. And when we conduct ourselves accordingly, we give evidence to the transforming truth of the gospel and our conduct rings out and shines forth as a bright light in a dark world. So I was working on this message, thinking about those missionaries, Jones and Griffiths, who took the gospel to Madagascar in the early 1800s. I emailed our friend, Folly Ravwangi, Many of you know Folly and Lily. They were here for a number of years. Folly went to seminary here. He's from Madagascar. He's back there now, pastoring and doing great work for the gospel. And I asked him, I said, hey, I'm doing this message. Are there examples in your church of people who came to Christ because they saw the compelling conduct of someone else? And he wrote back, and just said, there are so many examples. And then he gave me three. And he told me of a young man who came to saving faith in Christ and then began a ministry with street children there in Madagascar. And his commitment to patiently engage with those kids was such a compelling testimony that his former friends, including his brother, were drawn by God to saving faith because of his example. Folly said earlier this year, there were four, three friends and one brother, four of them baptized as a result. And then he told me a story about uh, a singing group where one of the men was a Christian and he consistently lived a pure life when some of his other bandmates did not. And one of those bandmates saw his conduct And God used that to convict that man's heart and to bring him to saving faith. And another example of a guy who was looking for actually a word of faith church and made a wrong turn and ended up at Folly's church. God's sovereign even over GPS. And there was an older woman in the church who showed that man such sweet hospitality that he kept coming back. And God used that to open his eyes to the gospel. And 
In his email, Folly went on to write this. He said this. This was just a few days ago he sent this to me. In Madagascar, like in the United States, the Bible Belt, everybody claims to be a Christian. But those who live out their faith stand out. Those who walk the talk are in the minority and thus shine like stars in the unfortunately darkening night of nominal churches. It's even more true in a country plagued with the influence of the Word of Faith movement. People are looking for spectacular miracles, breakthroughs in their lives. And then he said this, The real miracle is a transformed life looking to be faithful to God in daily, ordinary instances and struggles. As a pastor, the best testimonies I see are those who suffer well and display contentment in their circumstances. That is a testimony. I appreciate that perspective. That was true on the island of Crete. It was true on the island of Madagascar 200 years ago. It's true there today, and it's true here as well. If we are to shine as lights against a dark and corrupt culture, we must walk in a manner that is consistent with sound doctrine. When we do, we adorn the transforming truth of the gospel. We put its glory, God's glory, on display. And God can use our witness to draw sinners to himself.